morning, everyone. Um, for those who don't know me, my name is Susan Reddy. Oops, sorry. <clears throat> and uh, I have been attending here at Granville Chapel for about 30 years now, actually. <laughs> um, okay, so this morning we are continuing our series on humility. So I have to start off by asking you, when I say the word humble, who is the first person that pops into your mind? Now, right off the bat, I have to say to you, if your own name popped into your mind, this sermon is for you. <laughs> but all kidding aside, actually, I think this sermon is, as much as it is for anyone else, it's for me. And I have to tell you, every time I approach a piece of scripture, I almost come to it with fear and trepidation because I know God handpicks sermons for me that he knows I have things I need to learn. And this week was no different, actually. All week, as I've been reading and meditating and praying about what to talk about in this book of Esther, God has been pointing out areas of pride in my life. And then he gave me an opportunity to really see it at a meeting this week. Sitting in that meeting, I found myself so preoccupied with what all the people around me would think of me. I didn't want to look bad, I wanted to sound smarter and more capable, and I was. You know, when I drove away, I had this sad realization fall onto me. I had just spent most of the evening in the grip of pride. We all struggle with pride, whether we realize it or not. In some way or another, all of our lives revolve around ourselves. And pride is very insidious and quite sneaky because it knows how to hide itself so we hardly recognize it. It comes out in a lot of ways as perfectionism, false humility, an unwillingness to fail in front of others so we never even try, a lack of forgiveness, being very critical, sitting as if you're higher and looking down on others and criticizing them, being really easily offended, or really thirsty for praise. You know, in truth though, pride really does find its origin in the garden. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, desire for what God had forbidden them to have was in truth, loving themselves more than God. It's really being self-centered rather than God-centered, which when you think about it, that's the very definition of pride, isn't it? So. How do we move from pride to humility, especially when it's really such a part of who we are as human beings? Well, um, that is what we've been studying this past several weeks, um, looking at portraits of humility in Scripture. We want to see what humility looks like in the Bible, and the reason we want to do that is because we want to know, how can I be more humble? And so this morning, we're going to look at Esther, and we're going to see what her life teaches us about humility. So, let me begin by telling you her story, and as I do, I want you to sit back and engage your imagination and put yourself in the shoes of the people and think about what was happening to them. So, the book story opens in, um, during the reign of King Xerxes. Now, he was a real king. This is historic. Um, his Hebrew name was Ahasuerus. He ruled the Persian Empire from 486 to 465 BC, and at the time, his empire was the largest empire that had ever been known in, in the whole world. 
So the story opens with the king throwing a 180-day feast in the third year of his reign. And historically, we know that he was actually having a hard time politically. And so what it seems to be is he wants to display this power to stoke his ego and really assert his power over other people. So for a full 188 days, we're told, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. And then, as if that wasn't enough, towards the end, he decides he's going to have another party, and that this is going to be a seven-day party, and it's going to be in his garden, in the, in the palace, and there's going to be um, all kinds of marble all over the floor, and there's couches of gold and silver inlaid with, with all kinds of gems, and he invites only the men, because only men came to parties together, and women had parties together, and the wine flowed. And so after seven days, we're told that King Xerxes was merry in his heart. In other words, he was drunk as a skunk. <clears throat> and so he decided um, that he needed to um, get his beautiful wife, King Vashti, to come in and put her crown on and parade her beauty in front of all of his drunk male guests. And so rather than loving and honoring his wife, what's he doing? He's using his wife to pump up his ego, right? And so she refused. Surprise, surprise, she refused. And, um, but apparently, what we see is that he, that shows us really he's not as powerful as he thinks he is or he wants to be, and he was, his ego was wounded. The interesting thing is, the bigger the ego, the easier it is to wound. <laughs> and he was so angry, he basically deposed her. He's, she wasn't going to be his queen anymore just because she wouldn't come to his party. It's my party, and I'll cry if I want to. And so he sends her away. Now later, unlikely this was a little while later historically, because by this point we know that he'd probably gone off to war against his, not a very successful war against Greece. He comes back and realizes he misses Vashti. Apparently his harem wasn't good enough. And so his attendants came up with a plan to find him a new queen. So they proposed they were going to scour his entire realm for the most beautiful young virgins who would be brought and placed in his harem, and whichever one pleased him the most would become his queen. Now, these women were not going to have any choice over this. They're going to be taken from their families, given beauty treatments for a year. Goodness knows how long it takes to give beauty treatments for a year. Anyways, and then <clears throat> here's, the, here's the cusp of it. Go sleep with the king and the one that pleases them, and then <clears throat> go back to his, when they finish, go to his concubine, become one of his concubines, go to a separate section, and stay there, unless they were the one who happened to please him, then they would become his queen. Most of them would never see him again after that night. So, the king loved this idea. Of course he did. <clears throat> so, uh, so they went and they scoured everywhere, and one of the women, they gathered up, and what they were doing was Esther. And we know from chapter 2 that Esther was Jewish. In fact, her Hebrew name was Hadassah. And she had been brought up by her cousin Mordecai. He wasn't her father, he was her cousin, but he considered her his daughter. And because her parents had died, he raised her as his own. And he was from the tribe of Benjamin, a descendant of Kish. The reason they were there is because they were, along with many others, had been taken into exile in Babylon. And verse 7 tells us that Esther had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Translation, she was drop-down dead gorgeous. 
She was like, Miss Universe. The Bible totally understates everything, I've noticed. <laughs> but when she was taken into the harem, Mordecai told her to keep her Jewish heritage a secret. And that is the first in inkling that we're telling us that the Jews were actually, there was an anti-Jewish sentiment in the empire. Now, all of this, no doubt, would have been terrifying for Esther, taken from her home, her beloved guardian, taken into a harem of all things. <laughs> but apparently, she won the favor of Hegei, who was in charge, and he gave her special food and special treatment. And every day, Mordecai walked and roamed around outside the courtyard to see her. He couldn't go talk to her. She was in a cage. She was in a gilded cage. He couldn't talk to his daughter, but he really cared about her. Well, long story short, after this year of beauty treatments in the seventh year of his reign, Esther's time finally came. She was brought to the king, and apparently, he, she was more attracted to him than any of the other women. She won his favor. And so four years after Vashti was deposed, he made Esther his new queen. But still, she obeyed Mordecai, and she didn't tell anyone about her background, not even telling anyone that Mordecai was her guardian. Now, meanwhile, apparently Mordecai was some kind of a palace official, and he used to always go to the gate, the king's gate, to do his business. And one day when he was there, he overheard a plot against the king's life. So he told Queen Esther, who then told the king, who um, gave Mordecai credit. And so the king's life was saved. But um, the events were forgotten. Mordecai was not rewarded. However, they did write it down in um, the book of the Annals of the King. And that's going to be important later. So Mordecai was passed over for honor, but the next thing we find out is that, in fact, somebody else was honored. This man called Haman. Now's the time to boo. Ooh, Haman. Okay. <laughs> so, <clears throat> um, King Xerxes honored this man greatly. He made Haman the Ag Agagite second in command of his realm. But here's the thing. This spells danger. An Agagite is an ancient enemy of the Israelites. There are many, many shadows of Old Testament uh, in this book, actually. And Haman was very proud. And it was all that more boosted by the fact that the king then made an order that everybody had to kneel down and kind of honor him as he walked past. Except Mordecai refused to do it. We don't know why. Perhaps because he was one of the ancient enemies of the Israelites. We don't know why. But however, it really enraged Haman. Like I said, people with big egos have easily easily have them touched, right? Because they're kind of out there and it's easy to hurt them. So um, when he realized, though, that, that Mordecai was a Jew, he determined that he wasn't just going to kill Mordecai for revenge. He was actually going to kill all the Jews in the entire Persian Empire. We are talking a lot of people. So, but Haman, oh, so, and first of all, then, he decided he was going to decide on the day. So he takes the pur or the lot, which is where later we'll understand the the, the, the significance of this word, and he rolls the lot to decide when, um, when he's going to choose the day. And a day almost a full year later is chosen, but he has to get the king's agreement. So he, says, so he decides to go to the king, and you, you heard it read by um, this morning by Heather, that he basically lies, he twists the truth. He doesn't even tell him who these people are, but he, he offers to give the king a fortune. What he offered him was a fortune to do it. And 
the king totally abdicated responsibility. He just took his ring off, gave it to him. It's like saying, here's my signature, do what you want. And he said, go ahead and do whatever you want. He didn't even ask who the people were. So we read that in verse 13, uh, uh, verse 12 of chapter 3, that on the 13th day of the first month, which is Nisan, the day before Passover, Haman sends out a decree to all the provinces that on the day chosen, all the people were ordered to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day. This is atrocious. <clears throat> so this edict would likely have arrived on the day of Pentecost. Sorry, the day of Passover, pardon me. Pentecost is quite a while in the future. On the day of Passover, the day that the Jews, think about what the Jews were celebrating, were supposed to be celebrating that day. The day that God had rescued them from an evil leader, rescued them from death. It's no accident that they received this edict on that day, reminding them of God's past faithfulness. But of course they were devastated. All they know is they're going to get killed. They go into mourning, they wear sackcloth, including Mordecai. And then he goes outside of the gate. Queen Esther doesn't know about the plot. She's worried about him because her attendants tell her he's in distress and he's going around wailing. So she sends out a messenger and he sends her back a message telling her what's going on. And you heard what Heather read this morning, basically giving her proof of what was, what was supposed to happen and instructing her to go to the king and beg for mercy for her people. Now, this is a very dangerous thing he's asking her to do because in order to go beg for her people, she's got to actually reveal to them that she's in fact Jewish and he doesn't know that. So to save them, she has to put herself in danger. But also, if she goes to the king without being invited, she could be killed, that's the law. And so, um, and she says, you know, the king hasn't called me for me for 30 days. Apparently his order has cooled. And so she's afraid to go to him. But Mordecai is very blunt. He basically says to her, if you don't go, don't think that God's not going to rescue us some other way. But you and your family will perish. You will perish, Esther, if you don't go to him. And who knows? but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Without mentioning God's name, he's asking her to see, open the eyes, open her eyes, to realize God has placed her there for this very reason. And Esther believes him. In a great display of humble faith, she submits to God's will, and she places herself in his hands, and she says, okay, Mordecai, go get all the Jews in Susa to, to fast. And this is a difficult fast, three days and nights with nothing to drink or eat. And they were going to fast. And there's no mention of prayer in here, is there? Yet I think what we have to see is it's clearly implying that they're turning to God for divine aid. What are they going to fast for if not to ask God to help them? And so after three days, Esther gets herself ready. She puts on her most beautiful robes, can imagine how she prepares herself, and she goes with fear and trembling to see her husband, the king. She's terrified of her husband. She stands outside, and he sees her, and he's pleased with her, and he extends his royal scepter. So she comes in, and he says to her, Queen Esther, what is it that you want? Now, Esther is very wise. She doesn't want to tell in front of all of the attendants and people at court. And so, and she also knows she has to get the king ready because this is going to be a difficult thing for him to tell him because, you know, he is kind of adjacently involved in this whole plot, right? 
So she invites him to come for a banquet with Haman, of course. She needs Haman there. And he goes, right away, he goes. He loves this idea. Apparently, he loves banquets. <clears throat> After they had eaten, the king asks her, what is it you want, Queen Esther? Up to half my, half my uh, kingdom. But she wouldn't tell him. Instead, she invites him to another banquet. But I want you to notice how wise she is in here. Because basically what she says to him, in a nutshell, is, um, if you come to my next banquet, king, O oh king, you will have said yes to what I'm going to ask you for. So she's basically setting him up already that if he comes, he's saying yes. And so, well, after this banquet, Haman goes home ecstatic. Wow, I've been with the king and the queen. But on his way home, he runs into Mordecai, who refuses to bow to him, and it, it really... Again, his ego's so big, it's easy to bruise, and so it spoils his joy. And he gets home, he calls his wife and his friends, and he tells them all about his things that have happened to him, but he also tells them about Mordecai. And so they come up with a plan. They tell him, why don't you build a really huge pole and then ask the king tomorrow morning to impale Mordecai on it. Hmm. And so he loved this idea. So all that night, he gets the pole ready. And then the next morning, oh, well, wait a minute. In the meantime, King Xerxes couldn't sleep. And um, so he asks his attendant to read the record of his reign to him. Maybe he thought the droning on of this boring record might not knock, nod him off to sleep. Who knows why he wanted this? He's quite egocentric, so he asks about the record of his reign. And it just so happens that he chose to read the account of Mordecai, saving him from the assassination plot. And so Xerxes realizes that nothing has been done to honor Mordecai, and he's mortified. So, in the meantime, Haman comes in, it's very early in the morning, and he's like, Haman, Haman's coming in to ask him if he can kill Mordecai, but before he can ask, he says, Haman, what should I do to honor, honor somebody who really is worthy of honor? And Haman thinks, oh, he must be talking about me. So, I would do this and that and the other thing and all these wonderful things, he says. And so then, the king says, great, go do that for Mordecai. And he is mortified. So he does it, he's humiliated, and he finally finishes all that, and, um, and then gets bustled off to the next banquet with the queen and the king. And this time, when King Xerxes asks Esther, what is it you want, Queen Esther? She tells him of Haman's plot to kill her people. Xerxes is furious. But here's the thing, you know, he's tangentially involved in this, isn't he? He gave the signal ring. So he goes out to the garden, and he's furious. And while he's there, Haman throws himself onto Queen Esther to beg for mercy. King comes back in and accuses him of trying to rape Queen Esther. And then he says, and if somebody was there and says, oh, by the way, um, there's a pole set up in Haman's backyard for Mordecai, and he goes, impale him on it. So guess who gets to be impaled on the pole he spent all last night building? Haman. So he then gives... Haman's estate to Esther, he gives all of Haman's authority to Mordecai, and the Jews are saved, basically, because he allowed them to send out a new edict saying the Jews were allowed to defend themselves. He couldn't reverse his edict, that was against the law, but they could defend themselves, and so they did, and um, there was a Jewish revival. There many people became Jewish, and they also made a whole new feast called Purim. Purim is double pure. P-U-R, meaning the lot, it commemorates the fact that God saved them and the people were rescued from their enemies. 
So that's her story. It took a while to tell it, but nevertheless, we need to know the story to see what's going on in here, because there is a, <clears throat> such a contrast between pride and humility in this story, isn't there? Xerxes and Haman were so filled with themselves and their own glory and position that they were constantly looking to pump themselves up, and they were willing to use anybody to get there. And But meanwhile, Esther, this young Jewish girl, blessed with incredible beauty, who becomes the most powerful woman in Persia, did not think too highly of herself to not go and help when she needed to help. And she was willing to use what God had given her for his purposes. And so how did she get there? <laughs> this is what we need to look at, because how she got there is going to help us to get there, isn't it? So I think there were three things that really made her humble. And there are a lot of things you can teach out of the book of Esther. So I'm just going to pick three things today to talk about. First of all, one of the, the main thing that made her humble was she knew God. She had a high view of God. Not just knew him as kind of a, one of the gods of Persia, but the living God. You know, God is not mentioned in this book at all, at all. But nevertheless, it does not mean that he is not there. He's there all through it. Just like you see wind. You can't see wind, can you? But you can certainly see it moving leaves on the trees. Well, just so with God in this book, he's moving all through the book. Um, he is sovereignty, his power over circumstances, over people. All those coincidences that we talked about that I mentioned to you, that the king could just couldn't sleep, that, that he could, he was thwart, Haman was thwarted, all of those things point, point us to God. And it's clear from reading this story that Esther believed in him and she trusted him. And so Esther may not have lived in Israel, but she knew the God of Israel. And she knew he was the one true living God. She knew he was holy, faithful, covenant, keeping God, the one that had rescued her people, the one that had carried them through, out, through the, out of Egypt, parted the waters in front of them. She knew all of that. She knew he had led them through the desert in his Shekinah glory. She understood his holiness, his majesty, his glory. She understood his power that was beyond her understanding. She understood that he knew everything, that nothing was impossible for him, and that he was in control of everything, including her own life. And because she knew that, she considered him worthy of anything that he asked her. She believed he was worthy of her trust and obedience, even if it meant she would die. Her humility is shown in her submission to God, right? Like a piece of clay, soft and pliable, willing to allow him to mold and use her for her purposes. Not saying, no, I want to, I want to do something else, just, yes, Lord. Because she understood that, she obeyed quickly and completely. According to St. Benedict, humility is actually shown in obedience without delay. Interesting. Her humility is also shown in her dependence on God. She knew, she fasted because she knew she couldn't affect change for her people. What was she going to do? Right? But she knew God could. So by fasting, she was in effect saying, I'm throwing myself on you, God. It's up to you now. So we see her humility in this, don't we? <clears throat> you know, the truth is, 
She saw God, and so she knew who she was in relation to him, didn't she? And when we see God, we understand that at the core, when we really see him, when he opens the eyes of our hearts, as we sang this morning, we understand this life is actually fundamentally not about us. It's actually all about him. And so Esther was humble because she knew who God was. The second reason, and it's really related to the first one, is that Esther was humble because she knew who she was. As she saw God, she understood who she was. That she was not primarily and first powerful Queen Esther, but that she was actually, and more importantly, Hadassah, child of the living God, created by him. And so she understood that everything she had, her beauty, yes, and I know that, Of course she knew she was beautiful. How could she not? Her position, her opportunity, her favor, everything was from him. And therefore, she knew she couldn't take credit for it. And so rather than making these things, making her proud, um, she remained humble. You know, it's really, really easy for people, for us even, to get puffed up if we have beauty or talent or we gain wealth or we have something it can make people feel like they're somehow superior. We can think they're superior. <laughs> it's actually quite sad to see when it happens with someone you know. But when we are secure in our value as a child of God, those things won't matter as much to us, and we won't need praise or feel disgrace the same way when we're secure in who we are. We don't have to push ourselves forward or draw attention or take all the oxygen out of the room when we come in because we know who we belong to. This really reminds me of a children's story I used to tell our kids when they were little called You Are Special. Some of you might know this or some of you may have told your children. It's about a little man called Punchinello, a little wooden boy who lived in a town full of wooden people and they had been made by Eli the, Eli, the woodcarver. And the townspeople, yeah, loved to stick stickers on each other. They did it all day long. And if, the, if a person was good or they liked them or they were achieving, they could jump high or they had beautiful paint, or they were successful, they would put stars on them. But if the person had chipped paint or fell down or, or well, you know, wasn't very good at things and they didn't really like them, they put black dots on them. And poor Punchinello, he was not very athletic or funny or popular. His paint was kind of peeling in a few places. So the other people stuck dots, all black dots, all over him until he was so covered in dots, he just wanted to hide in his house. Until one day he saw a little wooden girl named Lucia who had no stickers at all. And people tried to stick them on her, but they wouldn't stick. And so he asked her why. She said, oh, that's easy. I go to see Eli the maker every day. And so he was scared though. Would the maker want to see him? After all, he had so many black dots. But he was so discouraged, he decided he just had to try. So he crept to the door of the woodworker's house and he looked in and Eli was so big and he was so little and he was almost going to go away until Eli called his name, Punchinello. And he said to him, I've been hoping you would come here. Every day I've been waiting for you. And he picked, Eli picked him up. And he told him, he started to talk to him, telling him how much he loved him 
and that he should come back to see him every day because he had so many marks and that they didn't belong there on him. And so as Punchinello got up to go, he thought to himself, he really means it. Suddenly, a black dot fell off him. The truth is, when we come to see our maker, we know our true value. And the black dots fall off us, don't they? In focusing on ourselves, though, we also see who we are in relation to God. And we understand true humility. We are so much less than him. We actually, in truth, as we see God, we forget about ourselves and we rest in him. That was the case with Esther. She understood who she was so she could rest in him, not strive to use her gifts for herself, but to say, whatever I have, Lord, it's for you. For your glory, not for mine. So that brings us to the third thing that we see that made Esther humble. And that is, she loved other people. Because, and it actually flows out of the first two, because she loved God and had a high view of him. Because she understood who she was in relation to him. She was able to see other people as God saw them. And she was able to love them, not just a little bit, but sacrificially. She loved Mordecai. She humbly obeyed him even after she was queen. She loved her people. The welfare of her people was more important to her than even her own life. Um, she never used her authority or position for her own advantage, only for the advantage of others. She never used people the way Haman and Xerxes did. In fact, she wanted to freely give what she could for them. She was willing to give up her palace, her position, and her life to save them from death. And in this, who does she remind you of? Jesus. She's such a shadowing of Jesus. Esther didn't actually die for her people. She was saved, but Jesus died. He died for you and he died for me. He gave up far more than Esther ever gave up. <laughs> he gave up the glory of heaven, came to a cradle in the dirt, and he died on a cross so that we would be saved, not just from a death by a sword, but everlasting separation from him. Jesus is our servant king, okay, who humbled himself more than we can ever, ever possibly know. And he wants us to follow his example. In fact, the night before he went, he washed his disciples' feet, didn't he? We've already, Dan talked to us about that. He knew who he was, so he washed their feet. And he said, do. He said, no servant is above his master. Do what I have told you to do. And the truth is, it's only in knowing God and knowing who we are that we can actually love others this way because otherwise, all we want to do is compete with each other. We don't just need to know God. We actually have to be transformed by him. We have to come in humility to our humble king, bow our knee to him. And when we come to him and stand outside of the door of his throne room, we don't have to quake in fear. We don't have to put anything special on. We don't have to stand there wondering if he's going to extend his scepter to us. He wants to. He's inviting us. He will. All we have to do is say to him, Lord, I'm a sinner. I have no hope but you. And he will forgive us, remove every black dot, and give us a new heart 
This is what we need to be humble. We can't drum it up in ourselves. We need a new heart, a heart that loves God more than ourselves, and as a result, loves others more than ourselves. So yes, Esther was humble because she knew God, she knew who she was, and as a result, she loved others. So really that reminds us of God's commandment, doesn't it? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And I would say to you, that is the secret sauce for humility. It's more of God. Isn't it always the answer? More of God and less of me. If we want to be more humble, we need more of God and we need to be transformed by him and we need to spend time with him. So my question for you, as I'm ending this morning, is this. Do you know him? Do you know your humble king? If you don't know him, come to him. Come to him. He wants you to come, and he will welcome you, and he will forgive you. All you have to do is bow your knee to him and ask for his forgiveness, and he will give you new life, incredible new life. Now, for those of us who do know him, my question for us is, will we choose to spend time with our maker every day? Because the truth is, the more we will gaze on him, the more he will open the eyes of our hearts. We will see him, and we will love him, and he will burn away that self-love. One day, you and I, when we know Jesus, we're going to see him face to face standing before his glory and majesty and transcendence, do you think you're going to be thinking about yourself? Do you think you're going to be thinking about the people sitting next to you, whether you're better than them or worse than them? Not a chance. When we see God in his glory and majesty on his throne, all we're going to do is bow in absolute adoration and praise and worship because finally we will understand fundamentally this life is not about us. It's all about God. And we will bow in absolute humility before him. So do we want more humility? Let's bow to him every single day. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, it is so rich and it teaches us so much. And actually words fall short. They fall short to describe who you are. You need to open the eyes of our hearts, we sang this morning. And so, Lord, will you? Will you open the eyes of the heart of somebody here who doesn't know you yet and let them come to you right now and receive you, Lord Jesus? Just say to you, I'm so sorry for my sin. Lord, I believe you died on the cross for me. Please, please be my Savior and my Lord. For those of us who do know you, Lord, let us come to you every day, every day, gaze on you. And as we do, Lord, burn away the self-love, fill us with love for you, and then help us to go out and give it all for you. You are worthy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.